Hey guys, this is Mike Mahaffey, the old bastard BJJ guy, here for BJJ Mental Models. Back in my day, we had to walk uphill in the snow both ways to get to the academy just to learn some crappy technique from a random purple belt. You kids have it so easy, because now you can just subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium and get tons of great audio courses to learn new techniques, enhance your mindset, and entertain yourself. You can even get personalized rolling reviews from some of your favorite BJJ Mental Models coaches, including me. It's like having your own seminar, you spoiled little whippersnappers. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium right now, get off my lawn, and go train. Hey, welcome to BJJ Mental Models, episode 32. I'm Steve Kwan. Howdy! He's Matt Kwan. How's it going, guys? BJJ Mental Models is your guide to a consolid... <laughs> To a conceptual and intelligent BJJ approach. <laughs> Sorry. Gonna, Sorry, everyone. I'm not going to reshoot that. I'm going to leave that. All right. Um, so today, we're going to be talking about body tethering. This is a mental model that we've discussed in the past, but I think it's important enough to do a full chat on this because it has a lot of implications to how you play jujitsu. Uh, it also has implications to self-defense and MMA because a lot of the things that you can get away with in sport jiu-jitsu probably are not so wise to do in an actual fight. So by by body tethering, Steve, do you mean just uh, connecting yourself to your opponent's torso or even limb um, and basically trying to fuse yourself to them? Yeah, great point. So, so let's define this term and what it means. Uh, something that we've talked about in prior episodes is the different types of guard, for example, that you can play. And I know that, that your professor, Rob Bernacki, kind of breaks them down into different families of guards. And one of the types is a what he calls a clamp-based guard, meaning you are basically clamping onto your opponent. And the, the most obvious form of this is closed guard, right? You're effectively tying yourself to your opponent by crossing your legs around them. Right. And a lot of submissions work the same way, right? Like a triangle, you're basically tying yourself to your body or to your, your body, to your opponent. An arm bar is the same thing. A rear naked choke is the same thing. I mean, if we're realistic, a lot of jujitsu involves tying your body around your opponent's body. That's how you control them. Um, now that can be very beneficial or possibly dangerous for you, depending on the situation and something that is often not clear, especially to white belts, but even up to more advanced people is, when is it safe to latch onto your opponent like that? And when is it going to result in me getting smashed or getting my guard passed? And that's what we want to talk about today. Yeah, just and discuss some of the situations where body tethering could be very successful because at a high level, if you understand the concepts that uh, break down your opponent, of course, we're going to touch on alignment like we've done before, then it, it's actually uh, it's actually quite safe. But obviously, in some scenarios, tethering yourself to someone who's newer or someone who is much bigger, um, or if you don't break their alignment, you could end up injured or just in a really bad position. So let's touch on that. Yeah, yeah. So the way that I like to think of it is if you do body tethering right, then your body is going to be like an anchor or some, something that ties your opponent down and restricts their motion. If you do body tethering wrong, then your body is going to be like a tether ball on a high school playground and you're going to be bouncing around in circles, <laughs> right? That's, good. That's not where you want to be. So the main difference between when it works and when it doesn't is does my 
opponent have proper alignment when I tie my body to them? Because that's what's going to allow them to invert the position and, and to take dominance on you, right? Like the most probably visual example of this is if I try to triangle someone and they still have their posture, if they're powerful enough, they can pop up and just slam me, right? That's a, that's an example of where you have tethered your opponent, your body to your opponent, mm -hmm. but you did not properly deal with their alignment first. If, on the other hand, you triangle someone and you are able to break them down, for example, by grabbing their leg, or maybe they're just not, you know, you flatten them out somehow, if they can't pop up and pick you up, then you're generally totally safe. So, same situation, but just the different alignment of your opponent changes whether the body tethering is safe or unsafe given that circumstance. Yeah, and for, for some of you guys who are new to the podcast, uh, the first episode we did, episode one, was on alignment, and it's the core concept of uh, our jiu-jitsu system under Professor Robinaki. And um, basically, uh, just a, a brief refresher, alignment is posture structure base. I just think of these as like the three building blocks that make up uh, your body's ability to be efficient, whether it's jiu-jitsu or weightlifting or whatever. Um, you know, we, we never want to exert physical force in an inefficient, inefficient way. And doing so could lead to injury or just, uh, you know, underwhelming performance so so when we're talking about alignment we're talking about posture structure and base and these are all i think you can agree steve like they're all equally important when we're talking yeah, about yeah, that. like yeah. like i i don't put one ahead of the other uh they're they're all kind of important and it's, eliminating one or two or even three of them has devastating effects on your opponent because it denies them the ability to defend yeah i think that you can't really prioritize one of those three things above the other because the reality is if your opponent is good any weakness that you leave, they're going to find a way to exploit it. Like if you're protecting your posture by guarding your neck and keeping upright, they're going to switch to attacking your structure or exactly. your base. Or if, you're, yeah, or if you're protecting your base by, you know, like tucking your feet and making sure that you can retain your movement, they might grab your head or grab your arm or something, right? So it's like a, you know, the saying, a chain is only as strong as the weakest link. You know, alignment is only as strong as whichever of those three you've compromised. Yeah. And the score game that we've referred to in the alignment episode would be... Um, you know, you have three three of the uh, the alignment, posture, structure, base. Your opponent has those three posture, structure, base, and you're trying to eliminate your opponent's posture, structure, base while maintaining your own. And if you do so, uh, you know, eliminate two of the three or three of the three, it's time to usually go for a submission. So, for example, attacking a triangle without a wedge behind the head and affecting the posture is kind of dangerous because, you know, you're liable to get slammed and, you know, assuming that that can happen or they're just going to explode and possibly pass your guard. Just like, you know, going going for an arm bar on someone who has full posture is almost a guaranteed guard pass for them. Uh, just doesn't make sense to implement a technique on someone who has the ability to defend. And this is something that, um, you know, I kind of wish that I knew when I was uh, a lot newer to BJJ because it, you can take it and use it right away. I find that teaching the the concept of alignment and um, what we call position, uh, or sorry, uh, position over uh, what, alignment, alignment over, over position. position. Sorry, <laughs> learning alignment over position kind of teaches you to recognize when your opponent is actually actually vulnerable to be attacked, rather than just looking for a technique. Right. So alignment over position just means before we try a, any given technique, whether it's a sweep or a takedown or a submission, we want to make sure that we 
break the alignment of our opponent so that they can't defend. Yeah, this is something that I wish I knew a lot sooner. And this is a great explanation, Matt. But the general idea is that, you know, sometimes you look at something and yeah, technically you might have back mount on someone or technically you might have side control on someone. I like but, the Kimura example. Yeah, yeah. But if you don't really really have the person's alignment broken, you don't really have much. And, and to Matt's point about the Kimura example, like, yes, I can latch onto your arm like I have a Kimura. Like a but, figure four. Yeah, like a figure four on your arm. But if you're still able to keep that arm tucked tight to your body and I can't pull it free, yeah. then I haven't broken your alignment. I mean, it might look like I've got a Kimura, but I'm probably not going to be able to finish. Whereas a good Kimura is where I am able to pull and extract that arm free from the rest of the body. Um, it might look very similar to the untrained eye, but the difference is profound when you're actually sparring with someone. A, kim a Kimura will only work if you can actually pull that arm free from the rest of the person's body. Yeah, and what Steve is describing is uh, Ryan Hall has called it the open elbow before, which is, you know, when he, when he first started showing that, that really changed a lot of people's game and helped people understand how the Kimura works. Uh, the way that we describe it as uh, internal rotation of the shoulder joint. And only by creating that internal rotation where your partner's shoulder is, you know, locked out, that's only when, only when you do that is going to be where you get the control to be able to transition to the back or transition to triangles or whatever you're going to do with the Kimura. Um, failure to internally rotate the shoulder usually ends up with your opponent escaping the Kimura. Yeah. And if you're someone who's not, you know, you're having issues making your Kimura work, um, it's probably because you're not effectively rotating the lever internally properly. So, um, you know, luckily BJJConcepts.net is a great resource to learn the Kimura system. So Shameless plug. <laughs> so how this all ties to body tethering, uh, the general idea is if your opponent has good posture, structure, and base, maybe now is not the time to throw up a submission even or, or throw up a particular position, even if technically you can get into it. Like a perfect example is if I can try to triangle you, you know, if I, I used to think when I started off that like my opponent could be sitting there with perfect posture and I could just throw my legs up and then pull them down to the ground. Yeah, and it, it was, it, I, for me, sorry to cut you off. For me, it was always like, I was trained to think about isolating the head and arm. Yes. But I wasn't trained to think about looking at my opponent's neck or spine and if I, and if you shoot up your legs and try and trap their head and arm while they have a straight posture you're going to get past. Yeah, yeah. This is actually where why I started thinking of this term as body tethering is because what would happen is I would, you know, my opponent would have posture and maybe I'd be able to grab their arm and I'd, I'd try to throw up a triangle while they were fully postured up and I felt like a tether ball <laughs> just being, because my opponent was like a straight up pull and they could just move me however they wanted and I thought, you know, why can't I get this triangle? And at first I thought, oh, it's just because I'm not big enough or strong enough or my legs aren't, you know, long enough. But I realized after a while it's because I was prioritizing the wrong thing. I, I was technically in a triangle position, but I had not created the broken alignment that is required to actually get that triangle. Like it's, it's not a matter of step one, get the triangle, step two, break the alignment. The way you actually need to think about these situations is step one, break the alignment, step two, get the triangle. That's the same with almost any submission or sweep. You want to have the alignment broken before you start trying to actually apply a specific technique. 
Yeah, alignment over position is such an important concept and um, it works two ways. So not only can you use it offensively in terms of applying a hold, but you can also use it defensively. So if if I know that I'm inside my opponent's guard, if I feel them start breaking down my head, I, I can be pretty sure that uh, an attack is starting to come on now. Or if they're isolating one of my arms, that's more of the obvious answer. You know, if someone's trying to two-on-one your arm, you can, pretty, you can be pretty sure they're going to try and attack your arm. But... Um, understanding like what what would stop your opponent's offense usually being just good alignment and and posture structure base uh understanding that will it'll work in the reverse as well so that it'll be very difficult to submit you because uh you know alignment is kind of the main thing that makes you either offensively uh effective or defensively effective yeah yeah and an important thing too is even when you're in top position body tethering is still something to think about you know if you are on top of your opponent and say you have side control for example you still have to be careful because if you latch onto them too tight they can you know they can barrel roll you or if they're if they're really strong you know that's actually quite easy to do so even when you're on top you have to be careful not to be so tightly connected to your opponent that you're subjected to their movement, mm-hmm. right? That's really the the thing that I like to think about when I'm thinking about body tethering. I want to make sure that if I'm tying myself to my opponent, I'm doing so in such a way that I have the power and the control and not them. Um, it doesn't make sense to grab and latch onto a person if doing so is going to give them the ability to move you. Yeah. It only makes sense to grab onto someone if doing so is going to give you the ability to move them. Yeah. So like you see this a lot, for example, where, um, you know, especially if you're on, if you're on top, you know, sometimes people just cling on to the person on the bottom. Um, if the person is uh, strong enough, they can, you know, they can roll you from that position or if nothing else, they can use use the fact that you're latched onto them to create their own movement. Um, and now you're subjected to their movement because if, if you're tethered to them, you have to go where they go. So yeah. good body tethering prevents your opponent from moving, not not you. That's right. And, and when you're in that top position, like you described, Steve, it's important to make sure that you know, you're not just grabbing onto uh, their torso just to grab on because then sometimes maybe your hands would be in a better position if you were basing, right? Because then yeah. then at least you can, you know, you might still be able to create wedges around your opponent's body to control them. But if they start bucking, you, you're not going to get flipped over because your hands are, could actually be used for base. Mm-hmm. Um, and usually in the top position, I think the best way to maintain a top position is not just holding your opponent tight, Um but more so how thinking about how you can either isolate limbs or even isolate their head or put a frame against their head so that their posture is compromised or even one of my favorites is literally just crushing their face with my stomach. Which oh, I, I am aware. Super effective. Yeah, you and all of your students do this. It's so annoying. The like north-south pass. Yeah, or just like I go to I go to Matt's school to train sometimes. Like all of his guys will do like nose cranks. You know, you'll be like, I'll be just defending myself from turtle or something. And they'll just like elbow you in the nose and just use that as a lever to pull your head. Yeah. <laughs> the nose is a lever. Yeah. It is It is a lever. Like it's not illegal to use nose cranks yeah. to, to break up, you know, to pull the person's head free. If any of our listeners uh think that face cranks are are not cool or cheap or whatever i mean come on it's a move yeah you got to defend it the thing to bear in mind is yeah they might be not cool yeah they might not be cheap but they're legal and you're still going to be susceptible to face cranks right exactly there's there's nothing illegal about like manipulating someone's neck by moving their nose so tucking your chin is is not a defense yeah it's, it's actually a good example of how 
um, we get used to training in uh, kind of in, in a comfort zone in terms yeah. of things that that we think are are safe or you know maybe there's etiquette in a gym where there's certain things that although technically legal are just not really done because they're you know they're considered mean but you know what if those are actually legal then it's something you need to factor in and even going beyond that if something is not sport legal that does not rule it out in an, an MMA or a self-defense situation yeah. right and this is where body tethering is so important you know yeah technically speaking in sport jiu-jitsu maybe I can jump on you and just like latch onto you and close guard like a koala while you're standing up like in sport jiu-jitsu that might be workable where if you're totally standing up I can just be like holding close guard on you kind of like a fanny pack or just kind of hanging off the front of you but if you try to do that in MMA or in a self-defense situation you're gonna die (laughs) or even ADCC allows allows slams right like I think we're pretty much specifically talking about slams IBJJF rules and local tournament rules that follow the IBJJF rule set um that's where you're going to start seeing like, you know, no reaping, no face cranking, mm-hmm. uh, no spine twists. Like it, it's kind of a kind of a pussified version of jujitsu. But I think mo- like it's more of a like an Olympic style of jujitsu yeah, if there yeah. was one. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, back back to the face cranking. I mean, the, the thing about the attacking the face is we're seeing so many uh, so many really great back attack setups from smothering the face from cranking the neck like you can you can expose the the chin a lot by get, going for face cranks and keeping your opponent in a constant state of panic and uh, mm-hmm. and defense just by attacking their face but also like take Wagner Hocha for example he's got his I think he calls it the python where he literally takes the palm of his of his free hand and smothers the guy's mouth and nose with it and thus causing panic and a lack of oxygen to their to his opponent which usually will either he can I've seen him submit people with that but he you can also use that to uh to open up other chokes so is it dirty yeah it's it's not the nicest technique but you can't deny its effectiveness so therefore how is it not jujitsu well you know it's kind of funny because that all comes down to controlled breathing you know we've talked about how important it is to control your breathing um first of all because it allows you to control your energy level but also it allows you to control your your mental and emotional state and yeah cutting off someone's air supply is a very primal thing and it's not illegal to do right i mean like a lot of the time when i'm playing uh, if i have mount on someone a big part of what i'm trying to do is like use my my shoulder or my stomach to cover their face so they can't breathe right something i learned from my instructor yeah. he would do that to me and it's like you can be the most composed calm person in the world but if someone does that to you for like 60 seconds your whole game plan falls yeah. apart really really quick and it and it breaks your posture as well mm-hmm. i've noticed like in mount having a really low mount where you're driving your torso into their face um they you're so close to them that they can't frame effectively with their arms and it's even better if you don't have a rash guard on because oh, God. <laughs> even better if you have a hairy stomach which is just absolutely <laughs> disgusting we, i mean we've all been there right but but like again dirty yes but super effective well you know it's funny it comes down to doing what works this is something that we we talked about as a, as a mental model that is always good practice um it's very easy to get wrapped up in the dogma of what is considered um, proper etiquette and what isn't. 
and that closes your mind to opportunities that actually yeah. are totally okay and legal, but you've been conditioned to think that they're they're not okay, right? Yeah. Um, and that's not just a jujitsu thing. That happens in all walks of life. You know, a lot of really, really um, like disruptive, explosive business successes come from someone questioning something that just seems just absolutely crazy or impossible, like questioning things that just seem totally nonsense. Like it, it's crazy now to think about it, but most of our phones today don't have buttons. That That's a crazy thing. Like go back in time 10 years, 15 years and tell people like, yeah, we're getting rid of buttons on phones. And people <coughs> would think you're a total lunatic. But like, can you imagine going back to a, like a BlackBerry type phone that's just like a giant like smorgasbord of buttons? You know, that someone questioned something that everyone just took as common sense and it turned out there was a better way to do things. Yeah. Um, and like we wouldn't have things like Siri and artificial intelligence that allows you to guess what your typing is. Like we wouldn't have that stuff stuff if someone didn't question well do we really need all of these buttons on our phone yeah. and it's the same thing with jujitsu right if you know we're all trained don't cover the mouth we're all trained don't like tweak the guy's nose because that's just not good etiquette but there's nothing in the rule saying you can't do it um it's not going to hurt the guy really you know i mean yeah. well the nose thing might but you know honestly probably not that not really um so why can't you do it at the end of the day if the rules do say that there's nothing wrong with it yeah it i've actually I, I may be wrong because I'm not super sure how Wagner does it, but um, I'm pretty sure he takes his palm and pushes down on the nose so that it covers the nose actually smushes and covers the nostrils. It's super awesome. Oh, like yeah. instead of like covering with your actual hand, he uses the guy's nose pushing downward to cover the nostrils. Yeah. And uh, it's especially if he's got a motorcycle grip with the other hand, it's super hard to get out of there. And you, you anytime he wants, he can basically go for a face crank oh, at yeah. that point. Yeah. So well, you, you've seen the thing that my instructor does, right? Where he goes under the nose and he smashes your nose and pushes it up to get at the neck. It's like, yeah. oh, it's the worst. But yeah. Like why, why wouldn't you do it if, if it exposes a choke or if yeah. it helps you finish a technique? And frankly, it will teach the other guy to learn that that, that is an, a vector of attack and you got to defend exactly. that. Exactly. Well, it, well, it's like if you go to a school that's, and, and you know, there's a lot of schools, even some of the higher level schools, a lot of them don't allow reaping. They don't allow heel hooks. It, first of all, it's heaping. It's not reaping. <laughs> Master Helio would not have, would not have wanted it. Yeah. Um, but, but that like we, we've discussed before, like, like that's, that's really out of, um, a lack of, of information, a lack of education of yeah. how to defend, how to react properly to a reap, right? Where, mm. where someone's absolutely just going to like try and spin out and then as a, or spin the wrong way even. And, and as a result, they've hurt themselves when the reaping motion is actually not super dangerous. In fact, a lot of Delaheva positions, Delaheva I, find, is I, find a, I find a little <laughs> bit more dangerous than, than uh, reaping itself. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's all, it's all about education and awareness and understanding and, and not so much about the actual like technique, right? Yeah. So this actually does have interesting implications when it comes to body tethering because a, a mistake that a lot of people make is when they see that someone has exposed their back, they kind of get like tunnel vision, like a horse with blinders and they think I've got to get this person's back. The opening is there. But is it really, right? Like if a person, just because a person has exposed their back, that doesn't mean you have back control. And if you try to like jump on top of a person and take their back and you cannot get seatbelt control and you cannot get hooks, then actually you have tethered yourself to the other person, but they have control. This is something that I do all the time now is I will give up my back and go underneath a person and they get excited. But if they can't get anything on me, I'll sweep them like every single time. And it works even on very high level guys. 
Um, this is a good example of where like the Wagner Hocha approach is actually helpful because one of the things that you can do if the person is all turtled up from the bottom before you jump up and tether yourself to them you can actually use that approach to free up their neck and to free up their nose right because if they're tied up in a ball and you can't get at their arms or their legs you can face crank and use that to open up their head and then use their neck as a lever. And if you're going to jump on someone's back, you want to have some sort of lever control before yeah. you just like put your weight on top of them. Yeah. And, um, you know, a common, a common thing that happens when you're new to jujitsu or even I see it all in the kids class when they're on the back is, you know, you, you fall off. It's one of the main things that happens when you first start learning jujitsu and you try and get on someone's back is you kind of slide off. Mm -hmm. So just a few things that I could mention um, that will make your back take successful or unsuccessful. You know, if, if things that will, will not help you take the back are uh, thinking about getting your hooks first, mm -hmm. because usually getting your hooks first leads to a lack of connection with your upper body. Um, and you know, it, let's, let's be honest. The hooks is basically like a points thing. It, it does add extra control, but I feel like it's a rudder is the I way feel, I think of it. Yeah, I agree. I think, I think the true control comes from, uh, you know, your, your head position. If you're going to be successful at taking someone's back, you want to have that chest on their back. You want to have good head position, meaning, you know, your head's not super high where you're going to fall off, but hopefully right next to them, uh, acting as a wedge next to their head. So they can't m actually mobilize their neck. Um, and also, like you said, like either isolating a lever, like a Kimura and, and not just when I say isolating a lever, I mean like breaking the alignment of that lever, not just yeah. latching onto that lever. Yeah. Cause if you just latch on, like I do, I've done this to people before where if I, if I'm like turtled up in a ball and they try to jump on me and grab my arm, but they're not able to extract it free. You can do a Seowanagi from the bottom yeah. while in turtle on the guy. Right. Yeah. So it's. That's an example of where people get overly excited. They tether to the guy on the bottom without breaking their alignment, and then they go for a ride. Mm -hmm. And and also understanding, like uh, you know, we've discussed br breaking down just the uh, the human body th that it's it's four levers ahead in a torso, mm -hmm. uh, controlling the corners of of their body. We've discussed rotational control in a previous episode, where you know I want to be able to dictate where my, which which direction my opponent could roll. So if I'm mm -hmm. taking someone's back. They're in the turtle position. You know, I, I want to make sure that I can, I know that if they, that they won't be able to turn one way because maybe I've exposed a, a motorcycle grip on the other side and they can't turn the other way because it means they're either going belly down or maybe I've got the, uh, I've got opposite side corners controlled. And that's kind of, that's kind of the basis of taking the back for me. And, and then from there, you know, you can follow them wherever they may roll or, or however they may move, keeping your head in good position and then, eventually ending up with the hooks using either a you know a kimura control a motorcycle control yeah. or a seatbelt control yeah so the way that i teach back mount to my students is i tell them that you can prioritize three different things with back mount the number one most important thing is connecting your chest to your opponent's back and keeping it there that is absolutely the most important thing if you can do that and keep that connection you have a really good back mount no matter what else happens the second most important thing is arm control, meaning usually this means getting a seat belt on your opponent, but it can also mean like double underhooks from the back. Um, it can mean a lot of different things or like a motorcycle grip. But generally speaking, you're, the reason why you want your hands there is they hold that chest to back connection. That is their focus is it allows you to keep chest to back connection even when your opponent moves. The third and least important thing is the hooks because the hooks really, they, they're only 
actual functional purpose is they kind of allow you to sort of cut your opponent's body in half and prevent them from being able to really effectively use their legs and turn around. And you can use your hooks like a rudder to kind of steer your opponent if they start trying to roll out or spin out. Um, so from my mind, the hooks are the least important thing. You can actually have a very effective back control without hooks at all. And in fact, I play that a lot of the time. Um, one of the things that I tell my guys is, you know, if this is comes right back to body tethering, um, before you jump on and try to sink your hooks onto your opponent, make sure you've got chest to back, make sure you've got a seatbelt or something, because once you throw all of your weight on top of them and try to get those hooks in, if you don't have the other two things first and you're just going for the hooks, you're probably going to go for a ride. Yeah, I, I find that the hooks, like you said, I most of my back takes come from head position and arm position, whether I'm clasping my hands together uh, to be isometrically strong, or if I'm isolating a lever or a lever and, and my opponent's head, um, usually the hooks are an afterthought. But I do find that finishing from the back, that's where the hooks yes. tend to be more important. Yeah. Because, um, you know, if, if, if you relinquish control with your arms, sometimes they're, your opponent's able to escape. So you can use your hooks, whether it's a body triangle or or uh, or just classic hooks, or maybe you've got a rear mount where your hook is isolating one of their arms, thus making yeah. them, you know, only leaving them with one arm to defend. Um, I find that's a good a good use of the hooks when it's time to actually go for a finish. That, that's a good point. I mean, every back mount escape that I can think of, except for maybe the one that we talked about before the podcast, but almost every back mount escape that I can think of involves a rotational escape, like basically turning your body around to face your opponent again. And that's where the hooks really come into play. They help prevent your opponent from rotating out because while you are transitioning your hands to a choke or an arm lock. So yeah. that's where the hooks come into play. And I, I guess now you've got to explain that escape that you were talking yeah, about. <laughs> we're just discussing I, 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 one of my... Uh, I actually know this guy from before. He's he's a really high-level judo black belt. Um, not really super well-trained in jiu-jitsu, but just like really awesome judo. And just super explosive and about 10 pounds lighter than me. This guy actually just joined my school last week. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm rolling with him and like, I can, you can just tell some, some, some guys are super explosive and I got to his back. So positionally I can, I can kind of get to where I need to go, but I was trying to tether myself to his back with a seatbelt and I could feel him sort of slipping out and I'm like trying to, trying to get at him, but he's so strong. And all of a sudden he did, he basically did a backflip and ended up behind me. <laughs> uh, and, and it was, and, and he did the exact same thing watching him with other guys and it's just like it's amazing how different styles and different levels of athleticism um especially like if you're dealing with a really high level uh, wrestler or or judo fighter the athleticism and explosiveness is is uh it can be foreign to to the average jujitsu fighter and and it's funny how sometimes these techniques that we wouldn't necessarily teach in class yeah. can totally work yeah yeah it's well it's like um the, what is it that John Jones said where he talked about how, you know, he trains low percentage techniques until they become high percentage. Like, this is one of the reasons why it's so important to train with different people and, and different styles because if you're used to everyone training the exact same way that you do, you're not going to know how to deal with guys who are like trying to cartwheel pass you and somersault pass you and do all sorts of crazy stuff because it's just not something that you're familiar with. Um, 
this actually just came up today in in class we were talking about um, different stand-up techniques and we were you know there one of the things that i always find challenging is when um, guys do the uh, the judo overhand grip this is like a tall yeah. guy thing matt I yeah think, i know you're where talking. you're like uh, tall guys love to do this where they'll like reach over and they'll grab like thumb down onto the back of your collar and they'll push your head down because they're so much taller than you and it sucks because you can't you it can't sucks. go over their arm you no. can't really drop for guard because their hand is they're straight arming you i'm not quite sure how to deal with it and not many guys can do it because you've got to be really tall and so it's, it's one of those things where when because you're not used to it when someone does it to you you're like man i forgot how much this sucks <laughs> you know I, I know exactly what you're talking about and it does suck yeah. I, I i wouldn't say that it's actually a tall person move i would just say that a tall person doing it to a shorter person is going to be way more effective yeah, than yeah, yeah. a short person doing it to a tall person yeah so one of my buddies who's a judo fighter actually kind of showed me how to do this and he said he doesn't actually put the thumb in the collar even though you can he just he grabs the material behind the neck but the thing that he does is he actually um he will the same hand that's gripping behind the the neck he will actually use his elbow as a frame so Mm. as he's as he's breaking your posture down he's also framing forward with his with his elbow putting you in a box essentially so so it's like a collar tie basically it's it's exactly like a except it's anchored so you can't posture up and you can't come forward and it's really hard to change levels too when they're doing that so yeah, I, I hate getting caught in that grip. Yeah. It's the worst. Yeah, you know, on, on the note of all of this judo stuff, um, don't ever body tether to a judo person if you can avoid it. Yeah, <laughs> like like one of my coaches, uh, Mike Lee, you know, if mm. I ever go for like a single leg on him, he basically turns it right into an Uchimata or mm. or, or a uh, uh, Sumigayashi. And, it, and it, you know, he's just got such good awareness that he knows exactly where to be. And it can be really frustrating to, <laughs> to yeah. try and take down judo. Although other other judo, because if you 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 know you'll find that like a sing uh, a single leg will be their kryptonite just because yeah, of the they're rules not used set to there. it, right? Yeah, they're not used to those rules now. Yeah. So it, it's funny though. Like if you could describe judo, like one way to describe judo is like it is the art of getting your opponent to body tether to you and then making them regret it. <laughs> kind of, yeah. That's basically what judo is, right? Like you use kazushi to force your opponent to body tether to you, and then you plant them on the ground right yeah. it's a mo- most judo throws work that way where you, you, because judo is so much about like hip explosiveness and getting under the guy you're kind of forcing them up on top of you so they're momentarily tethered to you and then you launch them mm-hmm. and and back to back to just real quick like uh, when we talk about um taking the back and and how to make that effective i i find one of the best ways to to take the back as well this is something we didn't talk about like i mentioned head position and we talked about arm position and leg position but i think it's really important to think about uh placing a wedge behind your partner's head and yes. and and essentially what that is is just breaking posture right so not only not only do you want to like utilize whatever form of control you have whether you're using a lever or whether you're using a seat belt but using a seat belt you should be also be in a position where your head is on one side of their head and your shoulder is on the other side of their mm-hmm. head and focusing on uh bending their head downward or to the side is going to really limit their explosiveness and it's going to keep you in a better position to maintain the back so something to think about we're always looking to just break alignment and it really applies in every position yeah this is something actually that i got from your instructor uh he talked about how like one of the things that is common about every single choke in jujitsu is think of like a triangle around your opponent's head you've got one of the angled sides of the triangle against one carotid artery you've got the other angle on the other carotid artery and And then the flat part of the triangle, the horizontal part, is behind the neck. It's at the back of the head. And the purpose of a choke in jiu-jitsu 
is you've got that triangle around the head and you use that that wedge behind the neck to push down and to shrink down and make that triangle smaller. That has two purposes. It puts pressure on the carotid arteries, but it also breaks posture, right? Because if you're if you have something behind your opponent's head and you're pushing down, not only is it going to shrink that triangle around their neck and and choke them, but it's also going to break their posture so they can't get out. Yeah. Yeah, when I was first <clears throat> I, like like you, I, I think you said this when I, when I first learned triangles, I just, I almost gave up all the way up until purple because I was like, yeah. my legs are not big enough. I, I had so many it. excuses. Yeah, I, so, <laughs> and, 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 but now I love the triangle and it's because instead of looking for, you know, instead of looking to isolate their head and arm, instead of looking to, to make my, you know, the, the classic triangle shape where you put your foot behind the other knee, I'm, I'm looking at their body, uh, in terms of alignment and I'm thinking, okay, I know that if I bend their head, I'm going to maintain this position, you know, it, granted I do everything else correct, but if, I know that if my opponent is able to get their, their neck straight and posture up, I, I might as well switch to something else and have a backup plan yeah. because it's just, there's no way you can triangle someone who has good posture. And that's, that's like the main thing I find that will lead to escapes from that position. Yeah. Yeah. Now, 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 of course, the truth of the matter is if your opponent is bigger and stronger than you, it's going to be harder to apply oh, yeah. a triangle. That, but, but that said, that just means that you have less room for error on the bottom. The principle is still the same, right? The principle is that you prioritize alignment over the position. So rather than thinking step one is get the triangle, step two is break alignment, you think of it the other way. Step one is break alignment, step two is get the triangle. You don't even attempt the triangle until your opponent's alignment is broken. That's right. Um, that's especially important against a bigger guy because if you do it wrong and they still have alignment, they're going to stack pass you, right? Or if the rule set permits, they're going to pick you up and slam you, and that's the worst case scenario. So uh, a big part of this too is understanding that if your opponent, you know, if you're going for the triangle or the arm bar and it becomes clear to you that you, you have not successfully successfully broken alignment on your opponent and you'll know right as soon as it becomes clear to you that you have not succeeded that's when you got to bail out you've got to either give up the position and go back to guard or transition to a different attack you can't kind of desperately hold on and try to finish that move if your opponent still has alignment because it's going to end up bad for you yeah you think slam should be legal? I think slam should be legal. Like, I, I don't see why high-impact judo throws are legal, but slams are, are not, right? I mean, the reality is I, I don't think someone is going to get fundamentally more hurt doing from a slam than they would from, like, a powerful uchimata or, or something like that, right? At the end of the day, I think... Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's hit or miss, right? But... At the end of the day, I don't think that the rule set should be encouraging people to like cling on to close guard while standing up or, or cling on to back mount while your opponent is standing. Like, I think that these kinds of things are, are bad habits. Um, and I know that a lot of the things have been, you know, taken out for safety. And I know that jujitsu is, as a sport, is fundamentally different from other arts, but I think that removing slams actually reduces the effectiveness of some of these positions in a real fight. Like look in MMA, right? Whenever you see a situation where a guy is trying to play close guard on a standing opponent, or they're trying to cling on like a backpack onto a standing opponent, most times it ends very, very badly. And I think that, I think we're doing a disservice to people by basically creating a space where we convince people that is a safe position because it's not right yeah that's that's the one that concerns me is if i'm on someone's back mm -hmm. and they're gonna 
you know, drop you right on your back, Rico Rodriguez style yeah. on Marcelo Garcia. And, and they might not be able to control it, right? Like sometimes people fall over, you know, and it, if you are the guy on, on the back and they fall on top of you, they might have very limited motor control to sit, to create a safe environment for you, even if that's their intent, um, let alone if they're malicious, right? I mean, I've seen some nasty back slams from in MMA where people try to cling onto the back. Um, that's something where I think if, if you get into that position where you're grabbed onto the person's back and they're able to stand up, I think at that point, like, you, you want to retain back control, but I think you've got to drop, let go of your hooks, get to standing, and then maybe try, like, a back takedown or something. I, I don't think attempting a rear naked choke on a standing opponent is a smart idea. Yeah, I mean, it's it's more of the sporty aspect of yeah. it, right? Which I can I can appreciate it. Like I I love sport jujitsu as well. I'm not I'm by no means like a self defense prude. In fact, I'm quite the opposite. I'm more of a jujitsu competitor. But like like for example, I'm kind of I don't really like closed guard jumping. I I think it's kind of dicey. Mm-hmm. Um, even though I used it, it was legal when I was white belt and I used it like all through my white, all the way to purple belt, uh, in competition, extremely effective technique, jumping mm-hmm. closed guard. But, um, you know, you do leave yourself open for a slam right there. So, and you, it, you're putting a risk with uncontrolled falling body weight as, uh, Danaher always talks about. Yeah, right? So yeah, it's yeah. like, like in the practice room, I don't like any of those moves. I don't like guard jumping. I don't like, uh, you know, scissor takedowns or anything where there's falling body weight that could possibly hurt someone's knee. But, uh, in terms of effectiveness, it's super effective. Yeah. Well, well, what you're talking about there is body tethering plus momentum. And these are, this is always a very dangerous combination for both people, right? When you're basically doing like a flying body tether that some, you know, there, there is a high percentage chance that someone on either side of the equation could get hurt. So it's, it's something to, to be mindful of. <laughs> As I think it was Stefan Kesting who, who said something to the effect of like, there's nothing more pathetic than watching two people try to jump guard at the same time, <laughs> which is definitely true. Yeah. I've done that once. I remember one time in purple, I was fighting a guy and like, I knew he was going to pull guard on me. Like one of the biggest guard players I've ever met. Some people just look like guard pullers. (laughs) This is is back when I would actually tease the idea of standing. (laughs) So I go with them and we literally both tried to actually, he sat guard and I jumped guard and I actually jumped mount. <laughs> and then and then the rest of the match it was it was purple belt so what would that be seven minute match is it five or is it no purple I think is seven. Oh. oh god you're gonna sound like noobs oh well uh, the rest of the fight literally was him trying to sweep and me holding on to my fucking four points <laughs> <laughs> so so yeah like you know jumping guard is effective and, and cool oh, yeah. things can happen um, like I think I think if your opponent's seated and you do you go for like a flying armbar on a seated opponent. I think that should be totally fine because oh, if your opponent's seated, their knees are yeah, yeah, like he's not really at at danger yeah. of you well, also, landing on him in a weird like with his yeah. leg in the wrong position. And you're also not in much danger either. Like going for a an ar- a flying attack on a standing opponent is one thing, but again, like if the guy's on the ground and you go for a flying attack. That should be totally safe for both people. I mean, I, I remember I saw Braulio Estima. Uh, he did a seminar up here years ago, and he was showing that where basically if you're in a situation where your opponent is like getting up in a scramble, he would just do like a flying triangle on them while they were coming up, while oh, they yeah. were on their knees. And it's like that that should be totally safe. Yeah, that's right? safe. I mean, yeah. just because there's, they're not actually standing on their legs. Yeah. Uh, flying attacks on a standing opponent are not only dangerous for them, but yourself well, that, as well. That's the thing, right? It's like, that is like you are literally like a tetherball at that point like you're yeah. both you know both of you could go falling and it, it can be very dangerous for both people cool anything else you wanted to cover on that topic matt 
Uh, no, I think I think the main takeaway that one of the main things we discussed was alignment over position, yeah. and that really is a game changing concept. Um, you know, in terms of of really when you're when you're trying to put your game together and you're trying to think like when you can actually go for that armbar, when you can go for a triangle, or or when you can take the back or whatever. Like, really, what what are the underlying resources that your opponent has that you need to eliminate to make this work, rather than just doing the move that you practiced over and over again. And, and yeah. I think, I think uh, for the instructors out there, really start to think about how you can break alignment. You're going to be, uh, you know, not only are you going to be much more effective in teaching jujitsu, but your, your students are going to, you're going to see that they're going to hit techniques at a way higher rate than just, you know, if you're just thinking about practicing techniques. Yep. Step one, break alignment. Step two, do the move rather than the other way around. Pretty much. Cool. So just recapping some of the mental models we talked about today. Of, of course, the topic of the day is body tethering. Basically, this means when you tie your body to your opponent's body. Um, this can be beneficial for you or for your opponent, depending on who has proper alignment. If you are able to tie your body to your opponent and break their alignment, this is good for you because you can kind of be like an anchor who's pulling him down. But if, if the opposite is true and your opponent still has alignment, then you're going to be like a tetherball and this is not where you want to be. Uh, of course, the main concept behind this is alignment over position. Basically, as Matt just explained, focusing on prioritizing breaking your opponent's alignment versus trying to set up some position or technique. Um, you will find that positions or techniques are a lot easier to achieve if you're constantly keeping your opponent on the defense by attempting to further break their alignment. We talked about controlled breathing. Very, very important to control your breathing, first of all, because it moderates your own energy level, but it also prevents you from panicking and going into a fight or flight response. And this is a strategy that as the guy on the offense, you can exploit. Yeah. And another, another thing about controlled breathing, I remember reading that Marcelo always would talk about like, he always tries to keep not only control his breathing, but keep a straight face and, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. uh, subconsciously it kind of keeps him more calm and keeps his heart rate in check so it's something that i try and do in competition as well as uh keeping a straight face and kind of it kind of tricks you to think that you're uh you know you're not you're not going to panic as much as as might be appropriate <laughs> yeah. at the moment yeah and of course the the last mental model we discussed today was do what works um it's very easy to get into the mindset of what is considered proper and not proper uh, but if you focus on just doing things because that's the way they've always been done then that closes your mind to interesting and innovative ways to change the game. So don't just do things because people tell you that that's the way it should be done. Really think critically about these things. And at the end of the day, if a technique is effective, it's effective. Yep. Cool. So we got an interesting question that came in. Um, this one I thought would actually be a, a really good topic to discuss, especially for, for both the instructors and the students out there. So we got a question from a listener who uh, said that she's got a girl in her class who is around 20 years old, um, came in from a, dis a different martial arts, um, possibly might be autistic. And the problem that's, that's happening is that a lot of the other people in class don't want to work with this kid. So um, this particular student who wrote in, um, by default, is kind of the one who always winds up getting paired with the autistic kid. Um, what she's saying is that um, this is actually representing quite a challenge because, of, of course, if this kid is potentially autistic, uh, she doesn't necessarily listen. Um, she's in, caused injuries a few different times. And the student who wrote in to us 
is obviously a bit upset about this because from her perspective, you know, you're paying a, a significant amount of money every month to train, but every time you go, you're getting paired up with someone who is a challenging partner and um, who, you know, there's a risk of injury to yourself. Is this, is this a kid's class or adult class? I don't know. It isn't fully disclosed in here, but if... But she the, said 20. Yeah, if the, if the, if the uh, autistic girl uh, is 20 plus, then presumably it's an adult class, yeah, okay, right? So, okay. uh, uh, so this is a difficult question because, I mean, I, I can imagine what this would be like, you know, as a smaller person. Imagine you're getting in there, you know, you're getting paired with someone who, um, you know, ha- has um, a mental health issue and no one wants to be the person who says, I don't want to train with that person, yeah. right? You're, so I understand why this can be a difficult situation as a student because, you, you know, you're, you don't, you're, you're going to feel terrible if you go to your instructor and say, hey, I don't, want to, I don't want to pair with the autistic person every time. It feels like an awful thing to say. And it does feel like, you know, you have some obligation to help this person. But on the converse, you're paying a significant amount of money for a service and you're not getting it if you're get, getting paired up in these situations, especially if you believe that your health is at risk uh, because you could be getting injured. So mm-hmm. this is a very, very challenging situation um, and it's a very difficult thing both for instructors and for students to approach. Matt, this is probably something that you want, you are maybe better off taking the first crack at as a full-time instructor. What are your thoughts on this issue, both from the student standpoint and the instructor standpoint? Yeah, um, I mean, I have I have um, some kids in my kids programs that are, you know, they have some mental challenges, some barriers, um, and it, it, it's definitely challenging. Uh, I think I think some of the best ways to deal with this is to definitely have more than one instructor on the floor at a time. I mean, you should have that regardless, but especially if there's someone with special needs, it really does help to have someone that can work with them specifically. I think I think you know, that this person is, is totally within their right to, um, you know, to be, to be a little bit displeased with this, especially if it's an adult class and and your training is starting to suffer because of it. You shouldn't be obligated to go with someone every time, regardless of whether or not they are, uh, they have a mental, they're mentally challenged or whatever. Um, you know, I, I, I have, I have friends that have, uh, I have a friend that has a school and he says that when, when a kid is coming in for their first class, he basically, is conducting an interview and he will tell the parent if he thinks the kid can go to the class or not rather than uh you know i i i try and have a home for every kid that comes in my into my class but there is something to be said for uh, a child or a student who's not able to actually do the lesson and in trying forcing them to try and do the lesson might might create uh, a negative environment for some of the other people. So it might be one of those situations where you kind of have to make the sacrifice of the one of, of someone who is unable to actually do the class for the sake of the well-being of the group. And it's a difficult challenge as an instructor. It's a difficult conversation to have with a, a student's parent. Um, but you know, I, I understand it. And, and I think that it could be necessary. I think that, um, it's kind of up to the instructor to recognize different abilities within a class and then modify the class or whether it's the structure of the class or bring in someone to help that person um, and to set different expectations for that person so that they can still, uh, you know, can they can still get value out of the class and 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 learn on on their own level. Um, it doesn't mean that they're going to be able to keep up with the class. As we all know, jujitsu is super technical. 
you know, tons of tons of details that are involved. And, and it might be one of those things where, hey, this person just might not be able to do the class. But I've, I've, I found that kids that have things like autism um, can actually be extremely successful in jujitsu because they have a hyper focus. It's just uh, sometimes it might be up to the actual instructor who can, um, you know, teach it in a way that it's able to be absorbed and they're able to maintain a level of focus that makes it makes it possible for them to still enjoy the class and find it beneficial. If it's, if it's becoming a toxic environment where this person isn't coachable, hurts people, is disruptive, you know, all these negative things, then it might be time to have a conversation with their parents and say, Hey, like, I just don't think it's going to be just for the sake of the group. And I don't, I don't think they're actually, you know, I think that's totally reasonable to do if it's at that level, if it's at a level where this person can still work with the group and they can still benefit and, and they're not hurting people, they're not being disruptive, you know, then, then, uh, then I think that there's, there's going to be a home in the class for them. But otherwise, you know, sometimes, sometimes you have to have those tough, tough, tough conversations being the leader. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, this is a very difficult, it's it's one of those like ethical conundrums that they give you in like a, in like a philosophy class, because there's really no good answer, right? On on one hand, you want to, you want to be a good training partner and you want to help people who are disadvantaged and have special needs. But on the other hand, you are paying for a service and you need to look out for yourself as well. Um, if it were me, my, my feeling is like, look, at the end of the day, you are the paying customer here, right? Your instructor is the one who is getting enriched from creating a gym. Your instructor is the one who is getting paid when students come in as as members. You don't receive any benefit from these other people being at the gym, right? You're paying for a service. You're not there to help prop up your instructor. If if this is happening to you, where you're getting constantly paired up with this person and it's a detriment to your training, what that tells me is that, as Matt implied earlier, your coach or your instructor is not doing a good enough job of making sure that there is proper instruction on the floor. Yeah, they're turning a blind eye, basically. Yeah, they're, they're basically really weird. Yeah, they're basically using you as an instructor. Like the reality is, if you have special needs people on the team, they are going to require much, much more attention. Um, yeah. And it might it might even be that they actually require a full time instructor of their own. Yeah. So you know, if you are now that said though the the message that has come through pretty clear in this email is that um, this this person doesn't want to go to their instructor for fear of kind of like coming across as weak or being a complainer. But that said, I I think that this is a completely justifiable complaint and I don't think you should feel any shame or embarrassment in bringing it forward. I, I would bring it forward, but if you're concerned about how to kind of frame this to your instructor, um, what I would maybe say, you know, rather than going in and saying, hey, I'm paying X dollars a month, I need better service than this, I would go in and maybe just say like, look, I'm trying to help this person. I'm trying to make a good team, but this this person needs more instruction than I can provide. I'm just a student myself and I can't do this. So I need more support from you. Can you make sure that when this person is training, maybe they get rotated in with other people. Yeah. Maybe where there's a more senior person, have another instructor or another coach on the floor. Maybe this, this special needs student's parents could be there. I mean, you know, she's 20, but she, that's still pretty young. You know, maybe their parents could be there to assist. I think it's perfectly reasonable for you to say that, hey, look, 
I I cannot do this by myself. I'm not trained at this. I'm not even trained at jiu-jitsu, <laughs> you know. So I need you as the head instructor and the person running this person to have more people on the floor to support this person. And I need to be able to get rotated in and out as well to get a break. That's how I would phrase this. Um, and that way you're not being confrontational and coming in and, you know, waving the whole, like, I'm paying you X dollars yeah. a month card. Uh, that can make people defensive, even if it is completely justifiable. So if you, if you frame it as like, hey, this is for the good of the team, I think that you're going to have a lot more success with your coach. Yep. I I, th- I think that's com- it's completely reasonable. Yeah. And uh, especially if you're like a lower rank, mm-hmm. you shouldn't take it upon yourself to be the instructor of someone who has special needs. It's yeah, it's kind of weird that you're honestly that the coach hasn't taken it upon themselves to yeah. to initiate a plan going forward. In my opinion, and if it's just falling by the wayside, then I feel like uh, you know that might actually be a sign <laughs> that your coach you know, might be a little either ignorant or... Well, they might not understand exactly how much attention is required when you have a special needs person, right? If they've never trained with um, with a special needs yeah. student, they might not understand the amount of attention that you have to provide. And they might just be looking at you rolling with this kid and thinking, well, clearly everything's okay. <laughs> Meanwhile, you're you're suffering and you're not getting the training you need and you're, you're worried yeah. about injury. So it could just be a, a level of ignorance. And this is a tough position to be in because number one, you know, presumably you're not really trained at jujitsu. Presumably you're pretty junior. And number two, presumably you're not trained to work with special needs students. So you're kind of like, you're lacking the expertise you need in both areas to make this relationship work. So I think it's perfectly reasonable to appeal to your instructor for help here. Yep. Cool. Anything else, Matt, that you want to add as a closing comment? No, I think that was a really good chat. And um, yeah, that's it. Cool. Well, as, <laughs> as always, um, you know, we're, our home on the internet is bjjmentalmodels.com. If you want to learn more about specifically all of these mental model concepts we discussed, we've got a full database of those documented there. We're also pretty active on Facebook, Instagram, and just generally posting ideas, articles that we find relevant. So please do follow us there as well. This has been, I think, another good episode, a great chat. Uh, and so we will talk to you guys again next week. All right, guys. Train safe. See you later.